1: Welcome to Nick Luck Daily, the show that brings you the latest news and the sharpest insight from around the world of horse racing. It is Tuesday the 10th of August. Tom Stanley in for Nick again and a packed show for you today. We'll be talking to Dale Gibson of the PJA about jockey conditions inside weighing rooms and his belief for a a need for reform. Neil Callan will join us. He's back riding permanently in the UK now. I caught up with him yesterday off the back of his first ride back at Wolverhampton. Uh, The gambling review will be discussed as well. A Daily Mail article was uh, brought to my attention speculating as to the likely reform and Newsboy of the Daily Mirror, David Yates and I will be assessing what that might mean for horse racing. But first of all, Richard Kingscutt is no longer, it was announced yesterday, going to be stable jockey to Tom Daskin. Dave, one of racing's most long-standing partnerships is coming to an end.
0: Yes, indeed. I'm, um, I'm going to quote from Andrew Dietz's article in the Racing Post. Uh, the, the the relationship began in 2007, and of course, when Tom Daskin moved uh, to Malpass in Cheshire to, to work for uh, Michael Owen and Andrew Black in 2009, Richard Kingscote went with him, although we learn physically, of course, that that he doesn't live uh, up in the northwest, but is is still based in Lambourn. Um, I'm not massively surprised by this, and, and and in in many senses, people won't be just simply because we know uh, that this season, Sir Michael Stout has used Richard Kingscote an awful lot. Um, again, to 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 quote some stats uh, from the article, it's it's. 29 winners from 148 rides over the last uh, five years. And, you know, with Ryan Moore, obviously, who was originally the stable jockey at uh, Freemason Lodge with, with his commitments to Aidan O'Brien um, over the last few years, opportunities have been created for Sir Michael Stout. I think that the point that is worth making uh, in this, with this article, this story, Tom, is that... I think that for most people who watch horse racing seven days a week, we all know the jockeys that we think are overrated and the jockeys that we think are underrated. The the two jockeys that are at the top of my list are David Probert and Richard Kingscott. I think they're both excellent jockeys from a tactical perspective, which basically is what it's all about. And, I think that, that that both of them should be riding or they should be ever present jockeys in group races. And that's the crux of it here. That whilst the relationship between Richard Kingscutt and Tom Dascombe, it, it obviously supplies both parties with plenty of winners and, and Tom Dascombe is, is on course for what is essentially, I suppose, an average season by his own standards. 2016, he uh, trained 75 winners. His his best was 79 in 2012. At the moment, he's trained 45 winners. So he's, he's not going to set Personal best this year, but it's not a disaster in terms of Richard Kingscott stats. He's ridden 91 winners this season, and his best is 113, so that was uh, five years ago. So he's on course for his best total. But what he obviously wishes to boost is the the tallying group races. And you know, you don't need to have followed horse racing for very long to, to know that a good way of doing that is to ride for one of the top stables enter Sir Michael Stout. We've we've already established that the link is there, and that's something that Richard Kingscott now uh, seeks to strengthen. He's 35 years old, so he really should be in the golden years, uh, traditionally, of a jockey's career. So, you know, it will also create a, an opportunity for an up-and-coming rider at Tom Dascombe's, but um, yeah, it, it's... I think this is the right thing to do for Richard Kingscote. I don't mean that in any way to denigrate Tom Dascombe's operation, but I think this is a jockey who deserves to be an ever-present in the big races and riding winners at that level. And I think that this link will allow him to do more of that.
1: I spoke to trainer Tom Dascombe a little bit earlier on. Here's what he had to say.
2: The truth be known, you know, I mean, Richard made this decision at sort of the beginning of the year when Sir Michael asked him, and he hasn't been our stable jockey basically for, you know, 2021, and... um, We obviously, you know, miss the connection, uh, but, um, you know, he'll continue to ride for us, you know, as and when available at each different meeting. Um, Now jockeys can only ride at one meeting. Everything's changed anyway, and um, I suppose it saves us a few quid in paying him to ride for us.
1: (laughs) I mean, he's still ridden 92 times for you this year, so it's you know it's not as if he's gone a well per se. But I, do you feel, no, of not. do you feel the the need, Tom, um, be it immediately, or I know you've suggested you'll just you'll just take time for now. But 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 going into next season to have a stable jockey, or can you operate without one officially? Well, I think due to the changes in
2: jockeys, only been able to do one meeting. There's even less need, there's no need for a stable jockey, you know, you have to just, it's creating far more work, but you just have to look at each meeting and see who's the best jockey available, and, you know, whether Richard is at Newmarket or Newbury or Ascot, well then, hopefully he'll ride the horses there for us, and Jane will ride, you know, wherever, and you just use the best available, Um, because, they can't go from Wolverhampton to, you know, Sandown anymore, or
1: whatever it might be. Mm. So you can sort of exist in a, in a way with almost gentlemen's agreements, because you, one jockey is going to be based at a track, and, and you can hope that they'll be riding your horses there.
2: I think there's one thing I've learned um, over the last few months, because if you if you think about it, I mean, Richard and I have been together basically forever. Uh, or forever in my training, you know, like uh, life. And I'm not used to having to do, you know, look for jockeys, if you like. Mm. You know? um, so I found it very difficult the last few months. But <laughs> I think now, you know, we're getting there and we're looking at who's the best jockey at the track that's available to ride. And years in that.
1: The, I mean, you've had some incredible success. I, I, I get is the overriding feeling just. I, 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 I get from what you're saying. You, you, totally understand his decision, but there's still an immense amount of sadness, I suppose, because of because of the success you've shared together.
2: We've been together a long time, and um, it wasn't something I was expecting to happen, mm-hmm. and it's taken a little while to get used to the idea of not going to the races and legging Richard up on a horse.
1: But when it when he said it to you, when he said what was likely to happen, um, did, did you immediately understand, or did that take a little while as well?
2: That took a little while as well, you know? And I'm not surprised. I mean, what amazes me is that 15 years ago, when I started using Richard people like owners didn't really want him and it took years and years for people to understand that he was a brilliant jockey and you know Rafe Beckett he started using him because he could see that he's a great jockey and it's taken all this time for the genius that is Michael Stout to realise He's as good as anybody out there, mm. you know? He's as good as anybody um, and better than most. And it just, it it's absurd to me to see that, you know, you could see this and nobody else could.
3: Mm.
2: And now everybody wants him. I mean, Mark Johnson, genius, he uses him. You know, Sir Michael Stout wants him. Rafe Beckett, great trainer. He wants him, you know? And I suppose the learning curve over the time period has been, well done, mate, you know, go and do what you need to do.
1: Tom, would you not have had the the success that, that you at the Yard have enjoyed over the last decade without Richard or anywhere near like it?
2: <sighs> That's a tricky one to answer because I don't know because it was how it was yeah um so you're asking me to answer a question saying if it was different would have been better or worse Hmm. i just i genuinely i wouldn't have a clue on that Hmm. but i do know this you know 365 days a year If Richard rides your horse, you're going to get an honest answer after the race, and he's going to do his absolute level best. You know, he doesn't drink. He has (laughs) no bad habits apart from being boring as hell. Um, And, um, you know, as I say, when you leg him up on a horse in a paddock, you feel confident you're going to get the best ride you can.
1: Now, Dave, Chris Cook wrote a piece in his uh, front runner column yesterday uh, regarding jockeys not being happy with the facilities race courses provide for them. Uh, Dale Gibson was uh, quoted at, um, at length in the piece, and I'll be speaking to him shortly. Um, some of the the facts that the article highlights are quite striking and I think quite shocking to an extent as well, given the era we live in. What's your take?
0: Well, the first thing I think to say, and, and this is a point that Dale Gibson makes in uh, Chris Cook's piece, is that the, the race course is the jockey's workplace. And so they want conditions there to be good as we all do. For example, uh, we all, uh, for those, for those people who, who still have a workplace and don't work from home in the, the post COVID era. And, um, To quote some numbers from Chris Cook's piece, uh, 26 tracks have one shower and one shower only for female jockeys. They make up 17% of the PJA membership. So you can see why uh, that represents a significant imbalance and anomaly. 13 tracks have just two showers for male jockeys. Um, Dale Gibson also tells us that there are seven tracks where you have to eat where you change, that there's no separate space. So he says up to a dozen race courses need a a kick up the backside. Now, we have to get the basics right. We know that money is tight in horse racing, and it's tighter, as it is in most industries, as a result of what's happened with COVID-19 over the last 18 months. But I don't think that many people would argue that the the, the two sectors of the workforce that that have to be looked after above anybody else, and I include the media in that, would be stable staff and jockeys, and in instances where those standards are falling short, obviously they have to be addressed. It's a a relevant piece, this. Uh, It's a relevant issue that's been raised by uh, Dale Gibson. As as he says, there are some tracks, he names Ascot and York as being ones that uh, look after jockeys very well, but for those Uh, 10 to 12 tracks that need as he uh, describes it a kick up the backside they have to look at themselves and improve those standards. Well here is Dale Gibson executive director at the
3: PJA. We're in the process now, Tom. Where I wrote to the BHA in January uh, with uh,
4: with our with our issues and our concerns over general facilities in uh, the majority of weighing rooms up and down the country. Um, it was something that we'd already started the process of quite some time before COVID struck in in March 2020. Um, and following that letter, there was obviously a little bit of toing and froing between the racecourses and, the, and and the BHA. And then we set up a series of meetings in April, uh, which uh, which have been uh, pretty well received. So there've been monthly meetings all the way through to to this last week. Um, so I wouldn't say they have uh, concluded, because I think there's a significant amount of work and toing and throwing still to be done with some agreements on certain issues. Um, so that's the sort of ballpark history of it, but. Having been in this racing game since I was sixteen, and having been in the wine room since I was seventeen, which is now thirty-six years ago, I know how slowly change takes place.
1: And is the the, the main stumbling block for a lot of the the courses who need to upgrade their facilities? I know in 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 Chris's article, for example, he talked about. Uh, expectedly Ascot and York being right up there. But those are courses that, that host some of the, the top meetings and therefore they have they have more income, if you like, more more um, financial clout to, to, to make facilities where they should be. Some of the, the tracks who can't boast such, racing can't boast such an income, surely the, the biggest stumbling block there is finance. And is that something that they could use to, to suggest that we, we can't update the facilities or, or is can't not an option?
4: Um, I, I don't have can't in my vocabulary, Tom. For anybody who knows me well, I'm, I'm a glass-half-full person and, and I don't like the word can't or no. Um, and it's, uh, it's certainly created quite a lot of impetus within the weighing room. I'll give you an example. Catrick Bridge, small uh, independent track, uh, spent a six-figure sum uh, just over a year ago on a massive update to their weighing room, which was... Pretty archaic and they needed to do something. Then they did the owners and trainers facility, done the paddock as well. Now obviously that was capital investment, but they managed it. So this shows you if they could do it, there are many other tracks that can do it. And in my article with Chris, I did say there will not be every track that needs to spend six figures. There'll be plenty of tracks that just with a relatively short turn around period and knocking through a wall here and maybe a wall there and using using space that uh, probably doesn't need to be used anymore and some some creative uh, uh, work they will be able to expand their restroom areas they'll be able to double up on their showers and create an environment which is more in place with professional sportsmen and women in the year 2021 20, and beyond um you, you you may have may have seen that there's seven licensed venues seven out of the out of out of, out of all the licensed venues the bha licensed race courses that have no separate rest and food area so those professional athletes those jockeys who are competing are changing and eating and walking around with not a lot on in the same place now no other professional sport would allow that you would feel uncomfortable if you were doing it and um we've just got to move on from there it's um it's been allowed to sit for too long um and i won't point fingers it's been a stagnation of oh it'll do oh we'll build it next year and i've had several race courses come back to me and say oh we've, we've got plans i've heard plans from one track for the last 10 years and um, there comes a point when you think actually we've got to progress this now. Um, so the wheel is turning. The BHA have, have finally grabbed the metal. They have been a little bit slow, but uh, I think the right people are behind the wheel now. Paul Johnson is is, is leading uh, part part of this, uh, and he's been he's been excellent. But I think the racecourses have really got to um, put their hands up particularly those who, who are providing one female shower. I mean, you can't believe that you know many racecourses programme female-only races with maximums of 13, 14, 15, 16 runners and still only provide one female shower, which on occasions wouldn't work. And there are 13 venues which only provide two male showers. Now, you imagine 20 males in the last race and there's two showers. It just wouldn't happen in a professional football club or a cricket club. Or any other major sport, and these are the these are the fundamentals and pretty straightforward ones. Tom, I, I hope you agree, which realistically should be mandated via the, the BHA Bargee, uh, which is the general instruction. They will be, um, but the trouble is they haven't been up to now. So the skeptic inside me has this tiny, tiny thought at the back of my mind, thinking, we're all going to be doing this work, and in two years' time, will there be the stragglers who still need rounding up? I have an end date in my mind. I think the BHA have an end date in in, in their mind as well. And ultimately, the BHA licensed the racecourses. And perhaps that is the final threat where in a couple of years' time... um, that unless a plan is in, or unless something is, is is about to be started, or there's a start date, then perhaps um, the the BHA should look at uh, should racecourse X be licensed to provide um, uh, facilities for for those participants that are helping to put on the show.
1: Now, in uh, keeping with the theme of jockeys, I thought it was a good moment to call Neil Callan and um, just get his view on his ride. Yesterday at Wolverhampton, I didn't ask him about the conditions in the in the changing room, um, Neil was having his first ride back in the UK for for some time, um, and it's his first ride back since coming back properly here, having been out in Hong Kong for so many successful years. Um, good to catch up with Neil, and I, I started by asking him what led to the decision to come back. Hey, Tavia, thank you.
5: Uh, it's good to be home. Yeah, like I mean, You know, I've spent a long time in Hong Kong and, uh, you know, my family have have grown. Uh, My older kids are old enough now to start looking at what they want to do in the next phase of their life. And uh, I suppose we're back here permanently now and, um, you know, so we can support them in what they look like they're wanting to do in, in later life.
1: Was it a difficult decision, Neil, to... After the success you'd had out in Hong Kong, and I, you know, I know what had happened at the back end of last season, but I know equally the offer was still there for you to stay. Was it? Was it a difficult decision to leave it behind?
5: Um, I suppose, like, I mean, in 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 a way, with the with the support I used to have from the racing public out there, like, I had, I think I had a great affinity with them. Um, they, 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 it was, it was them and and the Hong Kong press gave me the name Iron Man. you know i suppose in that respect you know it was a little bit difficult because there's uh, there's a bit of emotion there when you leave people that like really give you so much support but um, i suppose you know when when it's when it's time to support your family and the needs of them as they're as they're getting older i suppose the, the decision was made more easy in that respect so yeah look you know i think all in all the, the decision to come home wasn't difficult um, because obviously um, the decision was, was was based on my family, so mm. you know it was a very easy decision to, to come home. But um, obviously there's there's certain uh, things are going to miss about Hong Kong and, and living there. And uh, like I say, the racing fans there they're so uh, passionate. But um, you know we're, we're back as a we're back as a um, permanent fixture in the UK racing. So hopefully we can uh, get to somewhere
1: like uh, when we left. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, prize money is going to be different as well, Neil. That's, I suppose that's the that's one of the obvious things that's going to be slightly different back here now, right? Yeah,
5: of course, it's going to be difficult. Not difficult, it's going to be different. Um, but, you know, I, I rode uh, for a long time in, Hong Kong, in England before I went to Hong Kong, and, mm. you know, it wasn't much better then. So, <laughs> you know, I kind of know what to expect. Um, and, uh, look, you know... The most important thing for me is I want to come back, and obviously I've had a lot of uh, people reaching out on social media, you know, that have obviously watched my career from the UK when I was in Hong Kong, and uh, I've had a massive amount of support from here still over the last ten years. So it'll be nice to come back and uh, you know just get back into the fold of things and 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 hopefully uh, ride with some success and team up with a lot of my old foes
1: well you, you you're on your way back from walls now I know having ridden and, and teamed back up with with kevin ryan um are you a are you a different jockey now do you think because of the experience riding in Hong Kong would that have changed you um either attitude wise or style wise at all
5: i think yeah in every aspect it changes you because obviously you you learn as you get older in whatever you do and uh, you become a little bit more chilled and a bit more wiser but um I've I've definitely like uh, my fitness is at another level. I've I've sh- my mind is obviously sharper because Hong Kong racing is so um, tight and so like no, as I wouldn't say more professional, but you know it's just the racing is tighter there, and you know the decision making is so much uh, detrimental if you're if you're too lax about it. Whereas in UK racing, it can be a little bit more chill because. Not, everything kind of happens and, and it unfolds in front of you whereas Hong Kong you've got to be so much on the ball so I suppose it's going to change me in that aspect um, obviously I'm going to be competitive because that's that's what I do I'm a professional sports person so I don't think you ever lose that I think the most important thing as a jockey is that you still have it and you still want to do it and I haven't rode professionally or in a race for three weeks mm and the one thing i noticed about going out today you know even obviously we didn't get the result but i wanted but one thing for sure is that that uh, adrenaline and the, the will to win is still there so you know you can be assured that uh, i'm gonna be once i kind of get my fitness up to full race fitness again and you know just get the feel for the british racing again that um, you know i'm gonna be firing in all cylinders
1: Top man, that's that's good to hear. Um, it's great to have you back on on the racecourse in the in the UK, and we're looking forward to seeing more of you. Cheers, Neil. Fantastic, thank you, Tom. Yeah, good luck to Neil Callan, who seemed as, as hungry for success as ever. Now back in the UK, right. A slight change of tack. A Daily Mail article, Dave, was was brought to my attention, um, speculating about the likely outcomes of the gambling review it suggests a ban on cards for vip betting schemes an axing of sports shirt sponsorships i think that was was very expected also the possibility that online slot machines will be bought into line with the uh, FOBTI limit of two pounds now nothing's confirmed from this i'm reliably informed having done a little digging that everything is is very accurate and likely to come to pass. They're named as sources in the article and they are um, quoted. But if this does come to pass, Dave, how should racing react? Where does racing fit in with this?
0: I think at the very start of this process, many people in racing thought that it was going to affect the sport financially and in a negative way. Uh, We've discussed many times in the past on the the Tom Stanley Daily, uh, the possibility of affordability checks and and to what extent that would impact on horse racing but also from the very start tom we've had it in our minds i think in horse racing that there are possible curbs on parts of the bookmaking industry that might even benefit horse racing in a strange sort of way now these measures that are coming in obviously the 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 fact that uh, online fob teas are going to be in line with shop fob teas. that that would surprise nobody I think that it's everybody would applaud the uh the the measure to restrict the the courting of of big losers and VIP clients uh in uh, the betting industry and with regard to shirt sponsors it's interesting just to look at the Premier League of the 20 teams in that division, Tom, how many of those shirt sponsors do you think are betting companies? Oh, so in the Premier League, yes, uh, I would say two. Right. Well, it's actually eight. Burnley, Is it really? Yeah. Burnley, Crystal Palace, Fulham, Leeds United, Newcastle United, Southampton, West Ham United, West Ham United, and Wolverhampton Wanderers, and. The motto of Wolverhampton Wonders, of course, Tom, "Ex to neighbours looks out of darkness cometh light," and I think that that's an applicable motto in terms of horse racing because I think that many of us, for the last few years, have felt that many, not all, but many bookmakers tolerate horse racing as part of their business, but they don't do much to promote it uh, actively. I think that it's it's very rare to meet a, a, a seven days seven days a week punter who hasn't been restricted online or in a shop to to the extent where they think this is pathetic i'm not trying to pull a fast one by have a by having a a, a big bet on a horse for example in a bad each way race or or whose price is contracting I'm not trying to pull a fast one I'm just trying to have a decent bet on a horse and either online or in a shop you are told you can't have that bet you can have this and that's happened to all of us now it to 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 explore my rather tenuous link from Wolverhampton Wanderers if having been restricted in other areas I whistle to whistle sponsorship which which has already gone and uh, in terms of advertising on the tv and shirt sponsorship for um for football clubs if that means that that brings with it a restriction to uh, a bookmaker's activity in that area and therefore it hits their profits if they then decide well we should reignite our relationship with horse racing uh, we should We should commit to it more fully. Uh, We should be more imaginative in the way that we market it and more energetic in the way that we market it. Um, We shouldn't just restrict all punters as a matter of course, but we we should essentially allow the customer more of what they want. Then I think that that would be a good thing for racing. And And I think that most punters believe that. So... As I say, at the start of this process, we, we, were, we were fearful of how this might hit horse racing. But the betting industry is not just about horse racing. And if that means that as a result of certain restrictions, it does have to put uh, more energy and more commitment into the horse racing part of its business, then, uh, then light may indeed come out of the darkness.
1: It's Tuesday. That means it's time for our weekly Weatherby's Bloodstock segment on the Knit Clark Daily. And I'm delighted to welcome along John Costa, who started Cloverflay Stud in the 1980s in South Africa. And they've just been confirmed as the leading breeder for the season that has just finished. John, well done on that. We will come to that. But first of all, congratulations in a different form, in rugby form. Well done. The box beat the Lions 2-1 in the end. I'm sure you thoroughly enjoyed watching it. Yeah, you know,
3: it's, it's, uh, it's an amazing series. And, uh, you know, myself and Peter and Ross Doyle were sitting in the, in the stadium 12 years ago when the very same uh, Mornay stain kicked over the winning points then, you know, and he did the same thing 12 years later. It's just a great pity that the fans couldn't have been here, Tom, you know, because the Lions tours are so special. And uh, I actually felt sorry for the Lions as well because they they, they couldn't experience you know the South African hospitality with uh, going to safaris and uh, game parks and you know it's always great to 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 teach an Irishman to drink brandy and coke when you've been drinking Guinness all <laughs> that you know in the reaction.
1: And I'm glad you brought up the success 12 years ago as well, just to just to really really stick the knife in there. But uh, look, one day we'll win it back. One day. Hey, look, it's been a great season for, for you at Cloverleaf Farm. You were confirmed as the the leading breeder for the season just finished. But can we go back a bit? Just give us an idea of the, the history there, uh, when and why you started it up, John. Yeah, well, um, you
3: know, I've been very lucky in my career, uh, Tom. You know, I spent uh, um, two years over at in uh, in Ireland and I learned a heck, of, a heck of a lot from the fellas over there. Um, and you know I've got two fantastic partners in Bernard Cantor from Investec and Chris Van And and uh, you know when we put uh, when we put it all together, uh, we formed a new Cloverfly, and we've had uh, we've had wonderful success. Um, you know we've bought a lot of stock from overseas, and you know this is such a, a great global game that uh, you know we all need each other. And um, and for me, that's uh, something that's very important in the industry is that uh, it is global. And it's all about networking with, uh, with wonderful people. And we've been extremely lucky to not only be successful, but to have made a serious amount of really, really good friends around the world.
1: Does the farm want to keep a sense of, of um, family, a sense of history, but at the same time, I suppose you're always trying to um, bring in international interest and, and expand? Is that, a, is that a balance you're always trying to strike, John?
3: very much so but you know we've changed our uh, modus operandi a little bit in the last two to three years and we're making it much more now boutique type, uh, type stud uh, very much family orientated and going much more now for uh, for quality rather than quantity you know i think the game is shrinking in south africa quite a bit probably around the world as well tom so you know you've got to re-strategize and uh, you've got to re-look at, uh, at how you want to run your business so we're very lucky. We've we've got some real good quality on the stud, um, but it's always it's always a difficult job to to get your numbers down. Uh, but you know, e- economics makes you have to go that way.
1: And take us back to to some of the really early successes. Among the the first crop you bred was Roland Song, the champion race filly, and not long after you had Captain Al there. So did, did you did you hit the ground running? Is it fair to say?
3: Yes, Tom, I was very lucky and you know, I'm a third generation um, breeder. My grandfather started it all and then my dad and uncles took over from him and uh, and now we're a bunch of cousins now. So, uh, yeah, Roland Song was the first crop that I bred on my own and she was a fantastic filly, the first filly ever in South Africa to earn over a million rands. She was a, a champion every year she ran. Uh, and then, yeah, you know, I suppose the, the, the real good success story was, uh, was the birth of Captain L because what he's done for us as a stud and indeed for the industry in, in, in this country has been nothing short of phenomenal. So, you know, I think the universe conspired uh, to help me and, you know, the luck was there to be able to have a, a horse of Captain L's, have a, you know, uh, as a
1: stallion on the stud. Yeah, I mean, so he was phenomenal. For anyone in Europe who's not aware of what he did, I mean, he was the champion sire in 2015 in South Africa, eight-time champion sire of, of juveniles, which is a, a record over there. And I suppose as we've seen a, this recent development of of um, importance for precocity and speed and, and juveniles that hit the ground running, that must have really set Captain Al apart as a sire.
3: It did indeed, Tom. Uh, you know, as you said, uh, he was a fantastic two-year-old sire. Um, but, you know, he went on to win the classics and he absolutely dominated the classics. Mm. And then, uh, you know, he was able to, with correct matings, he was able to get a horse that could easily do, uh, you know, 2,000 meters. He won two Metropolitans in Cape Town, which is our biggest race in Cape Town. And he's now an emerging brood mess hire, and he's hiring uh, offspring that can win the Durban July, you know, as a brood mess hire. So he's, he's the real deal. He's colts and fillies, sprinters, middle distance horses, stayers great sales uh, horses and you know everybody that's had anything to do with captain L uh, has only has has only good words to say about him you know
1: how old was he when he when he passed away in 2017 John
3: he was 21 he had basically retired Tom he uh, he, he was he was infertile by then um but you know my big dream in in, in, the, in this industry is to make sure that the Roberta line survives especially in South Africa and um and I think with Captain Ali, he's got now four sons at stake. Hopefully, we're going to be able to achieve that. And, uh, and you know, the generations to come are going to be are going to be grateful that we've got a really strong Roberta sideline in South Africa.
1: How difficult was it to even try and replace him? And, and how did you go about that? Well, that's a great question because, you know, even long before you, your big stallion is, is gone,
3: you're making plans to try and replace him. And, uh, you know, obviously looking at sons of his was, was a priority for us. So we've got captain of all year, who was a, sprinter, so it's like a three-time group one winner. And in fact, Mark player actually phoned us up to get him to go and race in Hong Kong, because he was running some of the fastest times in the world over sprints. So he's had a great start to his career in his second crop. He, he's bred the source linebacker who, who uh, ran second in the Cape guineas, uh, won the Cape Derby the daily New- and ran second in the July. So he's had a great start, and then we've got another son called William Longsword, who won the Guineas um, out of a Ford Woodmere, who's by saddle as well. So, um, so yeah, I, I think I think we're in good, we're in really good shape uh, to carry his line on.
1: So there are two of the stallions you got standing there at the moment, and you got twice over there as well, which is I've, I didn't, to be honest, I didn't know he was with you. It's fascinating. How's he doing? No, twice over, it's just, he's,
3: he's one of the most incredible horses you'll ever meet, Tom, you know, he can read and write, he's uh, <laughs> he's so intelligent, he's an incredibly kind horse, uh, you know, he's bred one of the great horses this country's ever produced, a horse called Duragain, who uh, was back-to-back horse of the year, and uh, you know, I read Henry Cecil's book the other day, and it was just brought Backed so many memories and, you know, how well loved Twiceover was over there with you guys and especially loved by Henry. So, yeah, a bit of
1: nostalgia there, but uh, just wonderful to have uh, that type of horse at stayed here in South Africa. How did you acquire him, John?
3: Yeah, very lucky. I think uh, through Anthony Stroud, another great friend of ours, who was looking for horses for Bernard. And I think just an opportune meeting between them, and uh, you know that was the year I think that Frankel was going back to studs. So uh, you know I think twice over was a little bit off the radar for uh,
1: for the guys over there, and we managed to secure him. What about some of the success you've you've enjoyed on the track this year? Just just take us through some of the highlights because it's been a it's been a great season and a season that's just finished, right?
3: Correct. Yeah, we end on the thirty first of July. So, yeah, we, we, we had a really good season, Tom. We, we ran first and second in the Cape Guineas um, with and Rock and Linebacker. Both of them uh, sired by stallions on the farm. We won the Cape Derby by uh, Linebacker, also sired by a stallion on the farm. First and third in the in the Daily News. Uh, and then we had a really great uh, turnout at the, in the KZN Guineas, which is Group 2 race. But we sired the first four past the post, which was, I think, some kind of a record uh, in South Africa. And then the big one, the Durban July, uh, two of our three-year-olds ran first
1: and second. Comedy Dung and uh, beat Linebacker into second place. So that was a huge thrill for us. Tell me a bit more about um, Comedy Dung. And thank you for saying it first, because I I may well have got it wrong. But um, that's a a bit of a a rags-to-riches story now.
3: Yeah, it's a wonderful story. You know, we've got such a diverse nation in South Africa. And Comedy Dung is the first... 11 July winner owned by a man of color and, and then a wonderful man called Ashton Willemser. Uh, he bought him for a, for a, for a meager sum of 55,000 Rand here on the farm sale. We have a Cloverfly farm sale every year and we bred some really grosses off this farm sale, but uh, you know, trained by Michelle Ricks, small trainer. She's taken over from her dad. And uh, it's just one of those beautiful stories that racing continues to bring up and it endears the public uh, to to racing. So comedy dung is an Afrikaans name. It, it means bring it on in uh, in English. And the whole of the Cape Flats were cheering madly for the source when he won the derby in July. And I must say, it took two or three days to get over that. But uh, what a party.
1: Just give us an idea. I mean, there's the obvious um, difficulty I'm sure everyone has faced with regards to to, to travel. Um, and also movement within a country is, is COVID recently. That and other challenges that the, the South African breeding industry are facing at the moment, what would they be and, and how difficult a, a sort of last year and a half, two years has it been, John? No, it's been
3: very difficult. I mean, uh, we've got we've had massive challenges as a country and as an industry. But, you know, we're a resilient bunch out here, Tom, and uh, we've got some brilliant people hard at work at the industry. I mean, it's so cheap to, to race a horse in South Africa, yeah. Um, but they're, they're working on our stakes to get our stakes back up to where they should be. And, uh, you know, I, I don't think it's the light at the end of the tunnel anymore, but it's, uh, you know, it's it's far brighter than that. So we're full of hope that the, the industry is going to turn the corner and we, we're going to be firing again soon.
1: John, great stuff. Been great to catch up and, and thanks for joining us. All the best. Thank you, Tom. Thoroughly really enjoyed chatting to, to John. All the best to to him and the breeding operation. Right, Dave, you can send us away this Tuesday morning with a tip,
0: please. 650 at Chelmsford, Top number five, Outcast, disappointing at Lingfield 57 days ago, but is a course and distance winner, this Philly trained by Charlie Hills. And I take her to bounce back to form here. 650 at Chelmsford City, number five, Outcast. Dave, thank you very much indeed. Pleasure as always.
1: Uh, Thanks to everyone at home for listening. Please rate us, please review us, and please subscribe. I'll be back tomorrow. Uh, have a lovely rest of your day. Bye bye.
0: You've been listening to Nick Luck Daily, brought to you in association with FitzDares, the Racehorse Owners Association, and Thoroughbred Racing Commentary.